Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. One of our favorite things to talk about on this program is the food. We love the foods. A couple of text messages came in before we went into the break, 877-399-9898. About eggnog. You can't put fireball in eggnog. You need rye. What is wrong with you? First of all, (laughs) rye in your eggnog? Dark rum, my friend. Spiced rum. Uh, There are many things you can do with rye. I don't think that's one of them. But hey, if it's you that floats your boat, giver and you ask matt MacArthur, he can put fireball in anything anything uh d wayne says coffee should be hot as hell and black as the grave that's right d wayne why do we call it eggnog are there different kinds of nog if not it's kind of redundant greg in calgary um well you know why we call it eggnog is because it's all one word so there is no other kind of nog Eggnog is all one word, no space. If you do put a space in, you're basically calling it egg log because a nog is a small block or piece of wood. So egg, nog is egg wood. Eggnog is beautiful and heavenly. I can feel the angels looking down on this coffee and eggnog right now. It feels wonderful. All right, time for the world, world of Weird Things. Greg Fish uh, joins us. We are going to talk about food with Greg tonight. Hey, Greg. Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you a fan of eggnog at all? I mean, you you Southern Sunshine worshippers, you're probably into, you know, Mai Tais or something. Uh, No, not that different side of the Pacific. Uh, oh. No, I'm, I like eggnog. I appreciate it. I'm not fanatical about it, but, you know, once in a while, it's pretty good. You ever put it in your coffee? You know what? I've tried it. Not really my thing. I, I really just like my coffee pretty dark and with minimal additives. All right. You guys and your black coffee. My goodness. Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. We are talking about food today. Greg, um, there's one line in this article, and I'm just going to read this little bit of a line, and then I'm going to set you free on where we want to go here because we're talking about not only the vertical farming, but um, some of the other things. And I'm being coy here because of this line. It's muscle tissue grown in a bioreactor. That's terrifying. Where would you like to go? Okay. So let's talk about... Um, let's talk about the vertical farming and our food supply, and we will get back to the mint tissue and the bioreactor. Okay. So <clears throat> when it comes to vertical farming, this is an idea that's been around for a while, and the thought was, well, we have all this farmland, and it's very easy and fairly cheap to grow a lot of crops on farmland. But the problem is we use a lot of pesticides, there's a lot of monoculture, A lot of incentives are to basically just extract everything that we can from the land, uh, to use too much water, uh, to 
take care of it only as necess- only as much as necessary yeah. to make a profit. Yeah. yeah. Now, for the small farmer, of course, the incentive is to manage the land as well as possible. But the problem is the small farmer is being taken over by giant agricultural companies whose only real concern is what are the quarterly returns look like today. And that's just their prerogative. So the thought is, well, maybe we can simplify the food supply. Maybe we can reduce our pesticide use. Maybe we can return a lot of land back to its more natural state by essentially looking at what we're growing at farms, organizing it um, in buildings, maybe even skyscrapers, and just growing the food there more or less artificially. And that also sounds pretty terrifying if you are a foodie and if you are a purist, but the reality is it might be better for the environment long term because we would use, uh, we, would, we would create a higher quality product that's more easily traceable and is more local, although there are some caveats, and I'm sure we'll get into those in a little bit. Well, it and sounds like it comes the, to, the, sorry, just to interrupt you there one second, it sounds like it's possible that if you were to do the sort of your skyscraper idea here, that what is organic could actually become a whole new version of organic because although the it might be a manipulated seed to grow indoors, the reality is it might not need pesticides to grow because there's no um, threat to it indoors. So it's exactly. possible. Exactly. You use a lot less soil, you use a lot less water, you can be very precise with it, uh, and you can make very good, high-quality products. The problem is it's expensive because, first of all, real estate in cities is not cheap energy is not cheap and whereas you have sunshine to kind of grow your crops you would have to simulate sunshine which means you're going to have a hell of a power bill Um, and the problem is that power could come from fairly polluting sources because that's just the reality of of the matter and until we switch to more renewable energy that's still going to be offset at least though at least you're not growing a lot of crops and then shipping them around the world in very polluting container ships and a really complicated supply chain that has to respect seasons because you you have multiple you have multiple growing seasons in one location you have one or two good growing seasons in another location you have one season and and yet another one and you have to shuffle the food around so you always have the bananas in stores the honor the oranges the avocados and so on and so forth here you can grow anything at any time and literally deliver it down the street to your grocery store so that's generally the idea going forward and since you mentioned the bioengineered uh bioengineered meat which we talked about last week uh with uh eric chapman um this is kind of part of that whole scheme where let's let's actually take control of exactly what we're eating and how let's try and lessen our environmental impact and let's look at some of these things that seem like really radical departures from the way that we do our uh, the way that we grow our food today um, because we need to provide not just for today but we also need to provide for the future and we need to actually live in this environment that we're creating for ourselves. So let's try and clean it up. Let's try and apply some of this sci-fi level stuff to the way that we ordinarily live. It's a, it's a remarkable notion of where we could go with that if we could change it. Now, isn't that hydroponics, though? Isn't that really what all the weed dudes have been doing forever? Uh, a lot of it is. There are some more 
trickier and elaborate methods, but generally, yeah, you're, you're talking about hydroponics. And it, it is technology that's existed for a while. It's just it's difficult to scale it to a lot of just very common crops, like good cash crops. Um, it's fairly economically efficient. But when you're talking about some, some staples, uh, you are spending more money growing it than you would sell in it today. Yeah, and hydroponics is so incredibly water-heavy. That would also be a problem, wouldn't it? I mean, it will use less water than a large farm. The idea is you, you group things together to be efficient. You know, you use some of the advances in robotics and AI to just be as efficient as humanly possible. Um, it's not, it's definitely not, you know, we're not talking about a trivial amount of water, but we can optimize it fairly well nowadays because that was the problem with early hydroponics. You just have to use so much water that it, it's not, it's not at all efficient. Um, so, that's kind of where, where we're, where we're going with this. So the idea is at some point, vertical farms are going to be, um, are going to achieve an economy of scale. There's going to be enough of the technology, enough of it's going to be proven out that some of these components that have to be custom built for each, uh, of these vertical farms are going to be much cheaper and much more effective. Okay, so I know that you've written some articles about hydroponics, so you know this better than I do. My understanding is hydroponics is no soil, though. It's just water, right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, cool. All right, so now there, there we go. That's vertical farming. That's that's an interesting notion about what's next, about what's possible. Um, but what else? I mean, what else can be done that is going to be so different um, in, in the future of things? Because do you want to go back to this this uh, incredibly disturbing piece of your article, um, which I will reread, muscle tissue grown in a bioreactor? Yeah, you know, it sounds kind of gross i'm gonna admit that oh it's terrifying but, buddy but but here's the but here's the thought you know we we grow a lot of animals for food which is you know personally i'm not a vegetarian i don't necessarily have a problem with it um but i am concerned like a lot of people who eat meat and also want to you know live in a nice environment what happens um what happens when we raise all these animals and what, what happens with the farms? Um, what do we do with all the runoff? Uh, what about all the antibiotics and hormones that we yeah. pump a lot of animals full of, you know, There's I don't necessarily want to. No. Yeah. I mean, from, from the, from it, the cows. It, yeah. There's, there's of course that, but, but even more concerning, I would say to us should be um, the antibiotics because right. a lot of livestock is just, you know, perfect for superbugs. So right. we need to start looking at some of the meat that we're consuming on a regular basis and ask, well, if we don't want to give up meat, what do we do? Uh, because we can't all go vegetarian. We can't all go vegan. That's just not, that's just not something, that's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the solutions was, well, why don't we use this technology and simulate the growth of muscles and we can essentially create meat so we can have like burger patties that are engineered that way just some of the just some of the meats that we that we eat on on a regular basis not you know not your like nice fancy steak not your wagyu beef or something of that nature but just these these common meats that we consume just having them grown in these reactors without any hormones without any antibiotics um we essentially just have that protein and it would look the same, it would taste the same, it would have the same caloric content. Uh, we 
you know, we wouldn't be able to distinguish it because it is indeed meat, um, but it would not take the toil that it would on the environment around us. You would not need to raise a lot of livestock for it. You could focus on improving the quality of the livestock, have more, um, you know, grass-fed beef, more free-range chicken, you know, just have these, just have better conditions for the livestock that's there because, you know, if you're going to eat meat, don't you want to know that your meat has been raised in high quality and killed humanely and you're getting a really nice quality cut in the end? Okay, that makes sense. Um, there is an awful big industry of cattle, that uh, cattle ranchers and whatever, that would be grossly impacted by that. But in the spirit of looking at this, you know, from a place of what could be created, it's interesting, definitely interesting. So you, the idea that you would, you know, I guess, I guess they would make a steak look like a steak. It's not like you're just going to get like a Petri dish, a level of meat. Is there any meat here that is actually... Are we consuming this already and not know it? Or is there anything on the horizon here that we might be looking forward to seeing soon? We are not consuming it quite yet. There have been some approvals. There's some uh, there's some bioengineered chicken that was supposed to come to stores. And I have not actually heard anything about it from, from that point on. We're probably not really consuming it because it is relatively expensive to produce so far. It's still trying to be, it's still being honed. Um, so we're, you're probably not going to, you're not probably going to get it just anywhere. Um, Mm. and, but I think that at some point we are definitely going to start seeing it appear. Um, and it's going to be, the problem is the marketing for it. You can go in, in two directions. On the one hand, you can basically say, well, this is meat. So here you go. Here's some patties. Here's some ground beef. Here's some chicken nuggets, whatever. And you don't necessarily have to say like, oh, this has been bioengineered in a reactor because people might not really care if you don't tell them. Um, and it is meat. And if it passes all the safety and quality inspections, then what's the problem? The other way you can do it is you can pitch it as this, you know, like really cool sci-fi thing. But then you have that ick factor that you just voice saying, you know, bioengineered meat in a reactor. That sounds horrifying. So it just, it, it depends. I feel like we're going to have the um, the former approach much more than the latter, where you're just going to have starting to appear probably in fast food, I would say, because that's been like really good for the Impossible Burger and the other um, vegetarian attempts to replicate beef patties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can definitely see it showing up in fast food. Well, and there would be a benefit um, to too see- with Beyond Meat and some of those other products that are out there that have so many flavoring chemicals in them. Um, that has been one of the drawbacks to where they're at today, too. Uh, it's a remarkable conversation. The world of weird, it's just worldofweirdthings.com. Greg Fish, always insightful, Greg. And uh, we love talking about food. And so if we could put it in a burger patty, I'm sure that most of us here on The Chef would probably give it a shot. Thanks, man. I appreciate the time. Always a pleasure. This is The Shift Daily Podcast. Our conversation earlier about vertical farming, what it is and how it all works. And is it something that can help us in the future. Um, I want to introduce you to somebody who has had a massive impact on my life, uh, not only um, in business and geeking out about business, but sort of man to man. He's a friend. His name is Sean Fillion. His wife, Alina, is here as well. Uh, Partners in business, these two. Uh, Both monsters in my mind in business in the things they've accomplished separately and now working together on a project called The Harvest Hub. Now, The Harvest Hub is exactly that. Vertical farming, indoor farming, and so much more. Sean, Alina, thanks for spending some time. Um, Give us the uh, elevator pitch here, Sean, on what is The Harvest Hub and, and how vertical farming works. 
Well, thanks, Shane. Uh, appreciate all the comments. Um, the harvest hub, in a nutshell, is not a hydroponic or aquaponic or water-based solution. Instead, it actually is a soil-based indoor vertical farm equipment and smart farm technology to help and accentuate all of the rest of the farm equipment manufacturers that are out there. So we've built a proprietary um, soil-based solution, soils and hopefully seeds, software, hardware, and firmware, and uh, the building envelope and equipment necessary to um, build out any facility. And that facility could be your Quonset. That could be a freestanding building that we could uh, custom make. That could uh, go into apartments. That could go into garages. That could go into your backyard shed. We've built basically agri-lego is what we call it. So an indoor farm, I've always imagined it like the, imagine walking into Costco instead of racks of um, vacuums and uh, racks of uh, work gloves you would get sort of racks of tubs of vegetables. Is that still a, a somewhat reasonable uh, approach? Yeah, I think you could do that. I always say we were able to grow anything anywhere. That's really cool. what the harvest of is. Like you could grow anything from a beet to a potato, to a carrot, to saffron, to tulips, to blueberries, anything um, in our indoor farm. And that's why we created what we created was to bring diversity to the market. Um, there's lots of really great solutions out there, but that's what we do really well is be able to grow anything anywhere. And that visualization of the Costco is perfect for scalable food security and sustainability in, um, in, in great scale. Uh, that would be something where we've built our solution on those racks uh, to plug into automation. Our solution can go as far as a Costco warehouse and re be run by robots. And so deep root vegetables, which would be, I guess, the, the, the most difficult of the grow it at home type of vegetable inside. Well, yeah, I mean, all the solutions that are out there right now, other than your planter box in your backyard or your, your garden, um, there's really no solution that uh, brings the outdoors in and, and also um, contemplates the soil and the nutritional value that transfers into those vegetables and gives them a place and room to grow. It's challenging to grow, uh, let's say, a 12-inch carrot in a water-based solution. And uh, so this is where we come in. We are sort of the missing link in all of the agricultural tools and equipment that are being manufactured today to satisfy this new and emerging market where food security and sustainability and predictive agriculture comes into play. We can scale as high as you want, as big as you want, and as wide as you want. And imagine complementing the hydroponic farms that are out there right now with a soil-based solution. We'll have basically a full farm solution uh, anywhere, any place, and to grow anything. From so anywhere. in your backyard, yeah, in your shed, in your garage, wherever you want. So what we've seen some real success in is smaller greenhouses for cucumbers in Alberta. Um, in BC, we've seen some hothouses. Uh, the tomato hothouses in Redcliffe by Medicine Hat yeah. seem to have been doing dynamite product that have been coming out of there. Um, so is this kind of the next step beyond the typical greenhouse hothouse? We're talking just more climate controlled room and, and how do you deal with light? Well, our light right now, we've got a beautiful partner we're working with out of Edmonton, actually called G2V Optics. And these folks are way ahead of the curve when it comes to light spectrum and understanding what a plant needs or replicating the sun for that matter um, and, and creating technology or a technology roadmap 
or runways so that we can plug into it and then share and compile data so that we can create recipes and scale it. So the beautiful thing about what we're doing and folks like G2V and all the other folks that are out there in vertical farming is that we can now control our environment right down to the temperature of the soil, to the spectrum of the light. G2V can literally put you anywhere on the planet and replicate that zone, that region, the intensity, the uh, season. And then what we're going to do is match that with the soil composition and then the environment to go along with it. So imagine atmosphere or things like coffee or, or really high value crops that are just not available to be grown here or in Northern Canada or in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it really, it makes the World Wide web of, or the internet of things for agriculture. Mm -hmm. Well, I hear fresh veggies all year round that are local. And especially in the last six or seven months, we've seen um, sort of sustainability issues, supply chain issues uh, with everything going on globally. Um, our ability to be self-sustaining in Canada has certainly been challenged. Um, but I, there is one particular news story from about a month ago that made its rounds about uh, social media. And that was a veggie package that was on the shelf. And I think it was in Yellowknife or someplace up way, way, way north. It was $70 priced at for the veggie package. And so this would be, my understanding, perhaps a solution even up north. I mean, to be able to take a, a box and grow those veggies right there means no more $70 veggie packs for the folks living up, up north. Well, and you think about their uh, ability to educate themselves as well. Our whole mission is being farm, eat, learn. It's in our a core value. And if we could provide systems and solutions for the folks that have challenges with their food security, uh, this is the beautiful thing. They can have fresh, nutrient abundant produce available 24 7, 365 days a year. And, and they can also teach themselves and the next generation and collapse their supply chain. And it's a really wonderful thing. Technology is um, advancing in this space. At light speed, there's lots of folks entering the marketplace, and hopefully these folks that are in insecure uh, situations can come out of that with solutions like this. This time of the morning, we got an awful lot of farmers, especially at this time of year, that are um, out uh, finishing their crops, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they're out driving, doing their work. So what about farmers? I mean, I... I suppose the assumption would be that this could be threatening to the traditional farm. I don't hear it that way. I hear it, it would be a sort of an expansion of season for a farmer who might run canola through the course of the summer, but through the course of the winter, his only real option could be cattle for income. Mm -hmm. um, th this could create, you know, giant, like you said, quonsets or things like that on the farm that allows some sustainability and product through the course of the winter. It goes right back to that crop diversity discussion Alina mentioned is that, you know, the broadacre farmers out there, God bless them, they are doing a wonderful job for Canadians and securing a lot of our uh, necessary crops that uh, feed us day to day. And to accentuate that crop diversity through indoor vertical farming would give them the opportunity to not only feed themselves, but maybe their community and make the farm run. 365 days a year, like you said, maybe even grow the fodder or the produce necessary for their animals. Why not collapse the supply chain on their end and control every single ounce of uh, um, what they're bringing in, what they're feeding their animals, what they're feeding themselves, what they're feeding their community. I mean, it's, it's more than just what's going on today. They, there's lots of additional products that they could bring in and add value to their current operation. There's a farmer that I met. His name's Spencer. Uh, what a gentleman he is. Uh, he's got a big family farm, but they also started growing their own hops and doing their own brewery. 
Um, so this kind of innovation of, like you said, collapsing supply chain and being able to just create from it. Are you seeing more of that in this field in general? Um, because it seems to me like Spencer's on it, man. He's got, he's growing the hops, he's selling them elsewhere, and he's kind of looking at it going, well, wait a second, I can take a couple of people out of this equation and just do this here. And it seems like it's amazing product and well-received, and there's still leftover product to go to market. So is, is this something that we're seeing more of? Well, when you think about transportation and logistics, that's the whole equation with food insecurity. And if you could create a product and then add value to it and create, um, uh, let's say, beer or hops or uh, any type of flour or uh, any any product that you grow and manufacture something out of it, it just, um, and especially if you own the land and the buildings, um, you think about, you just think about that as far as uh, an opportunity for these individuals like the gentleman you mentioned. I think it's fantastic. It, collapsing supply chain, we see it all over the place. Uh, the Netherlands are one of the largest uh, growers right now of tomatoes and you saying hothouse. They've collapsed their supply chain so much that they've overgrown what their country can consume. So they've wow. become a world dominant player on the global market for uh, various crops. And why can't we do that? We have such abundance of land here and redundant land. Not everything can be farmed with uh, traditional approaches. So why can't we combine our expertise, our know-how, the people that are sitting idle right now? We've got a lot of talent here. Agriculture is where Alberta and Canada were born from. Um, this indoor opportunity just allows farmers, like you mentioned, to create more value here, create more jobs, create more products local to us. So I hear from this, if I want to grow lettuce or if I want to grow radishes, carrots, potatoes in my basement through the winter, there's a solution here from the Harvest Hub. If I want to go and um, put a big box behind my house on my farm or in my community, there's a solution here. Or if I want to get into the business of growing, um, there's a solution here. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Um and, and imagine, if you will, one of the things that we really would like to produce is the community-based software for service approach, where if you're growing in your backyard and folks in a tower are all growing in a community garden, like the plot allowance. Mm -hmm. If we go back in time, um, post-World War II and the plot allowances, imagine if we were able to do that, but in a vertical farm environment and then add the software and the software for service so that even a local restaurant could chime in and look at the people that are growing all the different produces around them and get that hyper-local uh, advantage. And then you get this new uh, veggie crypto, if you will. People are trading and growing and you could almost create um, a new industry inside of that. So small plot farming or intensive farming in your backyard, in your basement has way more um, access and um, opportunity than we think. Hmm. And not only that, I mean, after I was just in BC around Penticton and Oliver, um, you know, the new genetics of trees has changed, right? Like, so that doesn't even get into that conversation where you had big bushy apple trees that took up this much space uh, of the dirt. And then now you've got these tall skinny ones. So each tree yields yeah. less apples, but you can have 10 times the amount of trees in the same space. That doesn't even get into that conversation, um, which I imagine in time will impact this too, once the growing style uh, changes. It's amazing. Where can everyone get more information, Sean? 
Well, we're at theharvesthub.ca. You can find us there. You can find us on LinkedIn under myself, Sean Fillion, or Lena Martin. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. We're um, fairly active out there. Our website is a bit dated. We've been challenged to put, put time into that. Uh, we're really quite focused on the commercialization of our product and getting our channel partnerships, like I mentioned, and um, and then getting this to the next level. But to your point about building indoor crop varietal for this particular industry, that's one of our, our SWOT analysis. That's an opportunity and a threat for us. If you could, because um, there's, I mean, you name it, you want to start a broadacre farm and you want to grow canola, there's probably X amount, there's so many different varietal you can go and choose from basically off the shelf. Well, indoor, it, when we started the business, we were taking outdoor seeds and putting them indoors and we were challenged with that. And it's still a challenge. So to your point, we absolutely need the industry as far as plant pathology and growing indoor crop varietal to come along with us. It's an opportunity and a threat and it's huge. It's, it's the cannabis industry is doing it. The hemp industry is doing it. Pharmaceuticals are doing it. So eventually it'll get down to us at the, the food level, if you will. That's good. Um, it's amazing stuff. The Harvest Hub, uh, Alina Martin, Sean Fillion, um, partners uh, in this project and exciting news. And I look forward to hearing more as it grows. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Shane. Thank you again. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. That's right. That would be good. That would be good. <laughs> Wouldn't it though? Wouldn't that be the best thing that you could do? Possibly do is just literally like email somebody COVID. Correct. Hey, I'm gonna send you my cold. I'm gonna send you my sickness. Open this up. It's not a gift card. It's COVID. That's so good. Um, We're off to I'll a great end. start, by the way. This We're is off. a great start. I love this. Um, let me introduce you, everybody, uh, to you, and uh, and sort of share my intention in, in what we were trying to pull off here. So um, I'm lucky to be friends with a lot of really cool people. And one of the things that I have taken on in my study is conversation, curiosity, um, and, and so much more, discovery. And in one of those pieces, um, I sometimes just introduce myself to people that I think are really pretty awesome, that take a pretty wicked stand in life. And this is one of those guys. So I'm really, so sort of the shift family here, I want to introduce you to a guy named Brandon Alexander. Now, Brandon and I have just recently met, and um, I just think it's really great to introduce everybody to new people. Now, Brandon, the reasons why I like what you do is because to me, you seem very cemented in your stand and your stand is not always peaceful in that it is met with struggle, but then you stay with it. So it's not aggressive. It's not frustrated. It's none of those things, but there are times when uh, taking the stand that you take is sometimes hard. Mm -hmm. And I like that. And I like that you're willing to get into the conversation that other people are not willing to have. Now, that sounds all rather cryptic and maybe a little bit confusing. Some people are like, what are you talking about? So Brandon, I, I don't even know what Brandon does for a job. Yeah. This is the coolest part. Yeah. Uh, Brandon's just a dude who I think is awesome. Here's what I do know. Yeah. I know that uh, he's uh, got a handsome smile. I know that he's kind of a cowboy at heart. I think he's from Texas. He lives in LA. And... Um, and he really, really cares about the conversation that men can have starting with men and where life goes from there. So how did I do? I think that honestly might be the best introduction of all time. If we can just record that. And anytime I do something, I'll sure. just play that clip. I'll just play I'll that snippet you. right there. Kind of cowboy lives in L.A. 
uh, has a conversation. I mean, that w- that was amazing. I think you're spot on, man. I think that's cool. pretty spot on. Uh, you are you are from the south, and and you do like horses, and you're kind of that you, you're that kind of guy, right? Uh, well, we're not we're not there yet. What I'll just say is yes. <laughs> I'll just say yes because I keep having right. this conversation with people. So for the sake of the conversation, just getting started, we'll just say yes. I like it. <laughs> Cool. Um, building modern day gentlemen is is how you describe your new age gents, new age gentlemen. Mm-hmm. So um, in our conversation here on the radio show, I like to try to stand in that peaceful place. Sometimes people call in, they get upset, they get frustrated, and sometimes I get suckered in, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I'm able to say, hey, what's going on? And so I try to do that thing here. So we kind of have that in common in uh, in the way we like to share that. So tell me why men talking to men and being a gentleman is so important to you. Well, it's it's a different narrative than what we've been taught. The narrative we've been taught is men don't talk. And that's not even necessarily coming from the homes where men actually do have those conversations. It's a it's something that someone people have decided to place on men and we've had to try and break through these stigmas and these barriers and these chains of men lack communication uh, and, and these different things. So now we're in a space where we are trying to um, be examples for people to see across the board, to debunk the myth. We do talk. We do have conversations. We do connect. We are transparent. We are vulnerable. But a couple of people sharing their stories kind of got amplified and that became the normative uh, and a very broad stroke of what it meant to be a man. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's important for men to continue to to be examples and to show people like this is what it's like to see two men having a conversation that isn't sports yeah. related. That isn't about breasts and butts. Yeah. Or even about work or about work. Right. It can oh, be. The, he's on me again or this is this is happening again. Or, I, you know, I, you know, whatever the case may be, the, the negative um, very limited belief um, around the the extent of the conversation we can have. Okay, cool. Okay, so then, what is a gentleman? A gentleman is someone who who leads with love. He is choosing kindness and gentleness first and foremost uh, over ego, over force, um, over his over over trying to obtain something. Um, obtain something for the sake of ego. All right. For me, uh, ego was wrapped around, I'm not good enough. Mm. I'm not smart enough. Mm. Uh, You don't like me, or maybe I'm assuming that part. Uh, Ego for me was about 100% about disempowerment. It wasn't about power, being powerful. Yeah. So I, I sort of believe that the conversation about ego I sort of believe I have found that the conversation about ego usually comes from a place um, where you lived in ego and have been able to back away from that. One of those strange places in life that you can't know it's there until you've been there. Um, And you can't know that it's there until you've experienced life without it. So where did your ego discovery start? My ego discovery started because I was a professional dancer, a straight male professional dancer in Los Angeles. And I had a lot of, uh, where are we at with language on here? Oh, wherever you like. 
Okay. Kind of keep the F-bombs down. <laughs> I'll just say BS for the sake of BS, right? Okay. I had a lot of BS that I was dealing with in my life that was tied to my own traumas. And I tried to heal myself with uh, relationships with women. And it was easy to get women because I was, uh, the ratio I'd say is 50 to one women to straight male dancers in the industry. Yeah. And Los Angeles is a very large pool of dancers because it's where most training happens. Most jobs work. I mean, you know, it's, they call it the Mecca of media, if you will. So, uh, award shows, tours, all these things. So in that my ego became, and my ego started to say, uh, well, you can get the most beautiful women, the most exotic women in the world, X, Y, and Z. Can't nobody tell you shit. And in, in realizing that, that ego was just a voice that was covering up all the hurt. It was my protector. It was a, a protection. I got a plane going over. Let me mute this for one second. That's okay. Well, listen to the airplane. I like that. Uh, do I, uh, while you muted, though, I will tell you that I, I get that in uh, pretty girls, nice cars, experience like that very much happened for me too. And that's the thing, right? I think, I think if you look at a man's, um, uh, 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 the, the default program that almost makes sense because it's fed to you through things you see in movies, magazines, athletes, you aspire to, uh, uh, celebrities that you look up to actors, it's uh, obtaining for some reason equals value. The more I have, the nicer I have, the more value I carry. Not realizing that the value is not placed in the obtaining of external things, but the, the obtaining of internal wisdom, healing, and peace. That's where the real, real worth and value is found. You know, some of the, um, I want to acknowledge a couple of the listeners on the show. <clears throat> um, one of the coolest pieces of the puzzle, and I think I shared this with you before, but one of the coolest pieces of this puzzle for me is the insight that comes from truckers and nighttime drivers. Yeah. Because these are people that have an awful lot of time to be with themselves and mm -hmm. be with that dialogue. And, um, and I just want to acknowledge the, the sort of depth that so many of uh, audience members here on the shift have shared um, to exactly what you speak of, because you really brought me present to that. So, okay. So, that's, that's nice that we've sort of learned from those places and hopefully overcome, I call it consuming in life versus creating in life. Because I believe there are, two, there are two very distinct people in life. There are consumers and, and there are creators. Um, and don't get me wrong, of course, we all eat food, so we consume at times. But that, that speaks to the point of the balance of all the things, right? Like we... we we do need to be able to consume certain parts of life because we need to feed that. And then we need to create in certain parts of our life. So what becomes possible, Brandon, what becomes possible in this world when men start to talk to each other? What becomes possible is you finally get an insight of what, as they say, it, walk in another man's shoes, right? you you have the ability and the insight when you have a conversation and it doesn't have to be the deepest of conversations. It could be as simple as I decided not to cut somebody off on the freeway today in that conversation. It may, it may somehow trigger something in you to say, how aware am I when I'm driving? How aware am I of my anger and my frustration? How aware am I of carrying uh, other things that, that are going on in my day? There's a raccoon. Um, we love the dogs. That's okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the how how am I um, caring? Hold on one second. Hold on. <laughs> and this is I'll narrate what's happening right now. Brad is getting up and poking his dogs and uh, gently encouraging them to go inside and be quiet. <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh man. So I look at that and I say when men can talk to each other and have these conversations. You really break down barriers, you really break through um, someone feeling seen, heard, and valued um, in the midst of the conversation. And in that, you find that your, some, your, your experiences with someone may be a lot more similar than you think. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the States. You're in Canada. Uh, you, know, you have a, a talk show radio. I work with men on what it means to be a man. Um, there's so many differences, but yet at the same time, we have some so, so similar through lines and through our couple of interactions, um, I've taken away some, some things that I, I meditate on um, and, and kind of sit with um, once the conversation has finished. You say uh, on one of your posts just recently on your New Age gen- Instagram is uh, gentle, not weak. Don't get them twisted. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that hits me, man. That hits me yeah. because it often, it often gets uh, misunderstood. Yeah that people will observe that somebody being gentle um, in one lens. And that lens is really only happening with that person, that it's weakness that's happening. Right. Um, taking some time and some space there. Um, how does that impact the sort of the gentleman conversation for you and in, in what you're, you're taking uh, in this stand, brother? Oh, man, listen. So, you know, I think, I think with everything, it's good to find balance for yourself internally. And I think it's important to understand that as you discover, if you're someone who's not doesn't have a, a very high emotional intelligence, right? You can have emotions, but emotional intelligence with understanding your emotions, I think is what's important. But as some men start to dive into the work, they don't have boundaries for themselves or their emotions. So they become very movable, very bendable to life because they're only acting on emotion and have removed reason. They've removed boundaries and they've removed what I would like to consider a backbone. Now, if you look at a lot of different books around masculinity, they talk about the fact that a man is someone who can own and acknowledge how he feels, but also he's respected because of his stance. I can tell you by the core of who you are. So gentleness is a choice. It is not a byproduct of of just being emotional. Gentleness is you choosing in a moment, knowing that you have the power to... um, to crush or for the sake of the conversation, have the airplane fly over. Um, but I think, I think I look at, I look at, uh, for instance, right. I don't know. Do you have pets? Do I have what? Sorry. Do you have pets? Pets? Uh, yeah. I don't at the moment, but I have had dogs. Yes. Okay. So let's just use training a dog, for example. Okay. You could, if you wanted to grab that dog by the neck and push him into the ground and tell him no in order for him to learn. That's complete force. Yep. The lesson's still taught. You did something bad, or I don't want you doing that, right? But what are you teaching that dog to do? Are you teaching that dog to fear you, or are you teaching that dog to love and respect you? But if I tell my dog, hey, that's not okay, and when he does the right thing, greet him with a good boy, good job, I am choosing gentleness to show him that you're, I'm, I, this, is, this is what I want from you. This is what I'm expecting from you. This is what I would like for our relationship to be. 
And the same thing goes with raising children. The same thing goes with relationships with other men. The same thing goes with relationships with women. In these moments, you don't go in with force, but you have expectations of what you're expecting something to look like, to be in from, from the core of who you are. And you choose to be gentle in moments when conflict comes up. You choose to be gentle um, in a moment when they need affirmation or to be lifted up. You choose gentleness for yourself in a moment where you might've failed yourself. You might've not done something the way you wanted to. You didn't keep that workout, uh, workout program going the way you wanted. You're choosing gentleness um, in these moments. And that is strength because you are making a choice and you have willingness to make a choice instead of just being at the whim of your emotions and feelings. What if you could be gentle with yourself? And quite often we, um, we can be gentle with other people before we can be gentle with ourselves. Talk about it. Talk about I mean, it. Really? That, I mean, how many times of our lives have we gone and helped somebody before we even took care of our, our own, our own selves, right? Helping yes. somebody else move or, Hey, by the way, can you come, you know, help me with this project in my yard while your yard is in disarray? I mean, I think the <laughs> examples are, they're, they're real, man. They're, they're yes. there yes. and we'll give it away before we look at ourselves. So, how do we take that there, Brandon? How do we go and how do we be, is there a way that you found to be gentle with yourself that you can be forgiving? Because I, I just found one last week that I'll share with you after you do. Um, this happened yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, and I do it pretty frequently is uh, I catch myself in the moment of presence. So if I pause or I'm still long enough and I find myself thinking I should, I should have done or I should be doing this particular thing. I find myself, um, I find myself at, at peace with the idea that though I didn't, though I chose something other than that, I can choose something differently now and giving myself the grace to say, okay, you didn't do it then you didn't do it there, but now that you know, you can do it. Don't beat yourself up for what you didn't do. Give yourself the encouragement and, and, and reassurance that you can do it now and then do it. I like that. Um, should is a word of non-intent as a word guy. Mm. Um, if I come to Brandon's house <clears throat> and we walk in the living room and I say, oh, you know what you should do in here? You should paint the walls blue. So I'm basically taking this little nugget of an idea of mine and I'm dropping it on your lap. And I'm basically saying, hey, here's my idea. You're Go get it. You're on your own. I'm not going to help you with it, but you, you go deal with it now. So should is a word of non-intent, and we throw that on ourselves. And my experience of that was very simple, was I, um, I was just, I was going through tasks in my mind and how burdensome this ongoing dialogue of things I need to do in my mind, little things like open up the microwave to warm up some food and realize, ah, oh, crap, I gotta, I gotta wipe out the microwave, right? So I started to take all those little thoughts and I put them on sticky notes and I posted them on the walls. And I have this wall of hundreds of sticky notes now of thoughts that I don't care about. Mm -hmm. And the should is I should have a cleaner kitchen. The, I should have a clean microwave. I should, I should, should, should. Well, don't should on other people and don't should all over mm -hmm. yourself. And that's really where that's place I starts to land. That. There's no intent behind it. There's no intent. I, Anytime we say should, yeah. you know what you should do? It's like, not my problem. Go get it. It's your problem. It's no intent. Why do you think we do that, though? Uh, because it's a lot easier to diagnose you than it is to diagnose me. That's for sure. If they could and see my face, I wish they could see my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's also it's also a lot easier for me to um to um not look in the mirror about the things I need to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I can have an idea, that's just a lot easier than getting the work done. Right. Um and and I think I found that I found that especially in regard to when we talk about emotions. A lot of people are really good at giving advice but never uh, 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 but won't take the time to look look within, look in the mirror and face the fact that that same piece of advice that I just gave that person in regards to that relationship, that job, I will not apply that or I won't make it actionable in my own life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know that, I mean, I know lots of public speakers that will speak to um, exactly that. I know that with financial advisors, I know financial advisors that their finances are in such disarray, um, yet if they advise you, you will be remarkably successful. They're great at what they do. Yeah. But damn it, if they can get around buying, you know, really nice cars before they invest in a future. Like it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a human condition that we all go through. Mm. And the first step is just recognizing that it exists. But that's why you surround yourself with people that can be direct with you and that hold you accountable. You can only hold somebody accountable to their own words anyway. Like I can't hold Brandon accountable to what Shane thinks, right? So I can't hold you accountable and say your living room should be blue. Um, I can say, hey, I got an idea. What do you think about blue? And you can say, no, pfft, no blue, right? Like it, you can't do it that way. And it's exactly what I, what, I, what I do with the platform. It's not about the shoulds, right? And there's nothing that I, 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 I talk about that I'm not either living or, 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 or have lived. Because I, I'm not going to go to a man and say, um, uh, you should do X, you should uh, this. There's, because... There's nothing I want to put on. So I want to give people a choice. And what I want to present you with is an idea that if you so choose to, you can. And here's why I'm presenting the idea to you because of my experience. And if someone aligns with that, if with where they're at in their life, that I didn't push it on them and say, you should, because I'm the guy with the platform and you should listen to what I'm saying. I'll say, I've learned because of going through my father not being around, here's what I've seen. And someone can say, I align with that. Or the same thing with the, 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 the gentle, not weakness post. That post was directly correlated to my relationship that I've been having with horses as of late. That I find that there's a predominant amount of men who are very abusive to horses because they're such, such large animals that they don't go the gentle route of training them. Therefore, horses, most horses fear men because they think it's going to come with abuse. So what happens when you have someone who chooses gentleness in the training and has the same directness and assertiveness as someone who was being abusive? You know what it brings up for me in my word study? <clears throat> and we're, uh, we're going to have to wrap up, sadly. I could have this conversation forever. Is um, the difference between... So to me, there's always, there's extraordinary words, words that really need no explanation. We know what they are and only we can experience them. Joy. Joy is extraordinary because I can feel joy, but you can never really feel my joy. You can kind of be around it and get an idea what it feels like. Yes, sir. But, But you get to feel the impact of my joy, but you can never really feel my joy. What you're feeling. Right. Because it's only going on here, but it's still somehow magical and you can still feel it. So to your horse 
statement, it takes me to a place where the difference between power, see, power doesn't have an antithesis, right? Power is just power. There's either power or a lack of power. There is joy or a lack of joy. But strength, on the other hand, gets to have weakness. So inside that, you can have these people think they're powerful, but they're not. They're just being strong. And in order to be strong, someone else has to be weak. In order for the, in order for the horse uh, to experience the strength of the cowboy, the horse has to become weak. When you force the dog to the ground, the dog becomes weak, so you become strong. Well, you know when someone walks into a room and you kind of just turn around and you go, who the... Is that? Yeah. And you go, that's powerful. Whoa. That's the power. And that's the difference between those two situations. And I... I think I'm really left with, for the first time, the experience of that inside the conversation just between two humans. Mm. And I think that's what you just created for me. And that's really cool. I feel it, and it's wild. It's wild. (laughs) It's wild. When you, I was like, are we there? Oh, we did it. Oh, (laughs) we, oh, we did it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man. And I think as, as, as the whole conversation, as they run over to the raccoons again, and, and, and I, I often use animals as an example, because I find that that's those, it's those moments of, of man, ex, um, man, uh, exercising his, his, his so-called dominance and power, um, uh, in order to make something, uh, do what he wants. But what we're finding is, what we're finding is the more in tune you are with yourself, the more authentic and real you are with yourself, the only thing that is needed of you is for you to be you and to be clear about what it is you are looking for, what is this exchange, and what is it that, that I can offer to this, uh, to this um, whether it's a, a, your, your wife, your girlfriend, a coworker, someone you work for, someone you connect with. Uh, you are very clear about what you wanted and not once did I question your intentions. Hmm. Let's connect. Let's do this thing. I want to have a conversation with another man for my listeners. And in that, I was, I was on board because it aligned with something in me that said this is truth. And what people in the world are looking for from men in conversation, in exchange, and how they show up uh, in every uh, arena, aspect, and, and relationship is for them to be true to themselves and to the people around them. It's so good. This conversation could go on and on and on. Will you come back and join us again? Yeah. Oh, this is so good. Well, you know what? We can all take it, but not only in this uh, between two guys. I always say that when men learn how to talk to men, we change the world. And that's why we change our relationships with women. Um, But it can go into men and kids. It goes men to men. It goes... all over the place. So I want you to come back. It's newagegents.com. The Brandon Alexander is his personal Instagram, newagegents on the Instagram. I do suggest uh, you follow it because you do have other, uh, some colleagues that you share in some of your creation with too. And, um, and maybe we can talk about them uh, next time, but you can link up with all of them. Uh, Brandon G. Alexander from Los Angeles. Uh, Thank you, my man. Thank you so much. Shane, this is a blessing, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.